Well, I like to read. Um, I, I lo- always have loved a good book. I remember uh, we uh, lived out in the country, and so when we got out of school and onto the bus, it was like an hour ride. Uh, and I'm not just being, you know, we were uphill both ways to school type person, uh, but it was really, a, we were the last one off the bus. Uh, and so I always would pick up a good book and I would read it uh, and be made fun of on the school bus, but I would read it and it was always one of those things. And I find that as I have kids, it's sometimes harder to read, right? Uh, finding the time to read is really uh, the hard, hard part of it. Uh, but I like to read my uh, wife. Uh, she likes to read and we do not like to read the same thing. All right, my wife, uh, she loves like historical fiction. All right, she, she likes to think about how life was way back when. Uh, and me, uh, I don't really care about that stuff. So uh, I like to read more of your fantasy or dystopian futures, those type of books. Uh, those are the fun ones for me. And when it comes to reading, uh, we find that there's these things called literary devices. And what happens is authors will use these things to kind of uh, push the plot forward, all right, if you will. Uh, and, and a good author is able to do it in, in very fantastic ways. Uh, my favorite form of literary device uh, is that of foreshadowing. Uh, foreshadowing is when the author uh, hints at what is going to happen later on in the book. Sometimes uh, they, will, they will just tell you this is what's going to happen, uh, and that's still considered foreshadowing. But the best authors are the ones in which you read, you get to the end, and then you start to read the book again for a second time, and you start to pick up, oh, that's what he was doing there. Uh, one, of the, one of the most famous ways for me to explain this to you is that of Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare uh, did a lot of foreshadowing in a lot of the plays that he wrote. Uh, Romeo and Juliet is probably the one that many of you have have read. How many have read Romeo and Juliet, seen it on a movie, uh, know what I'm talking about somewhat? Romeo and Juliet uh, is about these two lovers. And throughout the entire play, Romeo and Juliet are talking about death, they're talking about murder, they're talking about suicide, and they're talking about how love does this to you, and lo and behold, at the end of the play, what happens? They die. They, they commit suicide, right? All right so that, that is foreshadowing. Shakespeare, throughout his play, is foreshadowing what is about to happen. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, wrote a group of books called the Lord of the Rings Trilogy, uh, and in the very beginning book of the books, uh, he, he foreshadows what will take place at the end. Uh, the main character, Frodo, uh, the guy that's been chosen to carry this one ring that they have to destroy, is sitting around contemplating on the monster golem, and he says, man, I wish my uncle would have just killed him when he had the chance. Well, uh, the wizard Gandalf hears Frodo say this, and he turns to Frodo and he says, who has the right to kill and give life? Who, gives that, who has that choice? And then Gandalf uh, muses for a moment and says, I feel as if Golem will still have a part to play in this story. And at the end of the series, we see that Golem is the one that ends up destroying the ring rather than Frodo. And J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he was foreshadowing what was going to take place two books later. I mean, that's some pretty good literary device usage. All right, and so uh, when we look at the Bible, we come across this idea of foreshadowing. The Bible, uh, better than most anything else, has lots of foreshadowing in it. Uh, we sometimes come across stories that we're 
confused about. Sometimes we just gloss over them when we're reading about them. And sometimes there's a lot of stories that really just don't make sense. But I would like to suggest that maybe they don't make sense because we're not stepping back. See, I think the Bible uh, is all about one person. And it's a bunch of stories that might seem like they don't make sense together, but really they're interwoven together to tell about one single person. And so in the time I have today, I just want to kind of uh, talk about those with you. I want to first start off in Genesis, in the creation account. Uh, we see that uh, in, the, in Genesis chapter 1, we come across uh, God creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, we're told that in six days, He creates all that we see. He created light. He created the sky. He created land. He created uh, the, the sun, moon, and stars. He created the birdies and the fishies. He created uh, the animals. Uh, and He created, lastly, mankind. And we're told that he creates them in his image. Uh, male and female, he created them. Uh, and the first one, man that he created, what he named Adam. Uh, and Adam uh, and Eve, they were the first people, and they were given one command, and that one command was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when God got done with all of his creation, he looked at it and he said it was very good. But we look at our world, and we're left with, one of two options. When we read Genesis chapter 1, and it says that God created everything very good, and we look at our world and we see that, in fact, it does not look good to us, we either have to say that God uh, was, has a very different definition of good or that something else has happened. Just this week, we uh, saw the horrific attacks in the city of Brussels. Uh, when I looked on Wednesday, it was 30 people that had died uh, and countless numbers that were injured. And this type of terrorist attacks happens all the time in our world. And if we're looking at the world and we're trying to decide, is it good or not, our answer must be no. We see disease happening all around us, and every year people are affected by it to the point that they die. You know, all of us probably somewhere in here have been affected with cancer, whether ourselves or our family members, and maybe we know people that have passed away because of cancer and other diseases. And when we look at this world and we hear that God has created it very good, and yet we see this disease all around us, we are, when we're in our estimation of whether the world is good or not, our answer must be no. Every year there's natural disasters. The earth just does weird stuff. You know, there's tsunamis, there's hurricanes, there's earthquakes, there's, there's all kinds of things that oftentimes leave people dead. Thousands of people die every year from natural disasters. And so if the world is very good, then does that really make sense to us? And so either the world is not good and God was wrong, or something happened. And when we read in Genesis chapter 3, some, we find that something did happen, and that thing is called sin. And we see that uh, Eve is tempted to eat from this tree that she was forbidden to eat, and she takes a bite, she convinces her husband to eat, and we're told that the world is cursed because of it. God uh, cursed it, the ground in which we live. There's brokenness in this world. And yet in the midst of all of that, we see that even though it is broken, God was working towards something greater. 
When God looked at the serpent that tempted Eve, he tells him, someday someone from the line of Eve will come and crush your head. And so this story, the first three chapters of the Bible, if we can take a step back, we can see some foreshadowing happening. In Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul will write that, that Christ came at the right time to die for the ungodly. And then he'll start talking about Adam. And he'll say this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, my, way death came to all because all sinned, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who had not broken a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. For it is by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And what Paul is saying here, to kind of uh, encapsulate what he's saying, he's saying Adam is a foreshadowment of who Jesus would be. You see, Adam, he came, uh, he failed at what he was supposed to do, and he brought death, but yet there was going to be a new Adam in Jesus Christ, and he was going to come, and he was going to fix that which was broken. He's going to give life where Adam gave death. The story of creation is really a foreshadow of what Jesus would do later on. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And what we see in the opening chapters of the Bible is it's still pointing to Jesus. It's still foreshadowing what he is going to do many millennia later. Well, if we continue in the Bible story, we come across a guy by the name of Abraham. Uh, Abraham uh, lived in the city of Ur, and we're told that Abraham is called by God to leave everything he has known before. Now, let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. How many of you would really want to leave your family behind? Let me ask this question. How many of you lived in Mexico most of your life? It's, you don't have to be ashamed of it, okay? All right. I, most, many people do this. Many people do not even leave their hometown. Right, and so for Abraham to be asked in a time where travel wasn't that easy to leave everything behind, that's crazy. And he does it. He leaves his family. He leaves his friends. He leaves his job. He leaves everything that he knows. And he goes to a place that God says, eventually I'll tell you when you get there. Right, he had no road map. And yet he just goes. And he was given a promise by God then. He said that, God said, I'm going to give you a son and he's going to bless the world. And you know how long it took him to get that son? A long time. We're told he's 75 when he leaves. 15 years later, God comes to him and says, hey, you remember that promise I made? I'm still going to give you a son. And then 10 years later, he finally gets Isaac. All right, so 25 years. How many people would want to wait 25 years for a gift from your spouse? If your spouse said, hey, I'll get you that sometime. We we don't do that. In our society, we're all about instant gratification, right? right, The greatest invention is Amazon Prime, right? Uh, You can order something, and then two days later, it's at your front door. That's awesome, right? You want to watch a movie? Hey, you got all kinds of streaming options. You don't even have to leave your home. How amazing is that? You, you, You just had a grandson that was born? 
you don't have to go see them because you have this thing called a cell phone and, and they take pictures on it and they send it right to you, right? I mean, we want what we want and we want it when? Now. We want it now. That's, that's our society. And yet Abraham is told, hey, you're going to have a son. And 25 years later, he finally gets him. And yet, in all that time, while he did have some lapses in judgments, he always believed that God was going to fulfill that promise. What great faith. And so imagine with me that, that you've waited 25 years for something, and God comes to you and says, you know what, that gift that you have, why don't you sacrifice it to me? Well, that's what happens with Abraham. His, his, God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to sacrifice Isaac on the, on the mountains I'm going to show you. And so Abraham gets up early the next morning. He puts wood on the back of Isaac. He makes him carry it up this mountain. They build an altar together. They tie, he binds him. He raises a knife. And that entire time, he believes that God knows what he's doing. And the story makes no sense. I mean, when we look at the rest of the Bible, we see that nowhere else does God ask for a human sacrifice. In fact, God condemns over and over and over again sacrificing your children. And yet, uh, we, we see that He says, don't give your children to Moloch. Right? This God that was all about sacrificing children, you, they built these old idols, right? And they, they had a hole in their center, and their hands were like this. And they would superheat these idols at the base to get them super hot. And then they would put their children, their infant children that just were born, through the idol into the hands. And sometimes they survived, and it was a blessing. And a lot of times they didn't. And God says, don't do that for very good reasons. So everywhere else in the Bible, God says, don't sacrifice your children, except here. It makes no sense why God would do this. Unless we take a step back and we look at the entirety of the story of the Bible. And we see that Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And what Abraham did, bringing his son in the region of Moriah to sacrifice on a mountain, is a foreshadowing of what God would do one day. In the region of Moriah, Jesus was placed on a hillside, on a cross, sacrificed not for the appeasement of God, but for the sins of the world. It's a foreshadowing. Later in the story of the Bible, we come across Moses, and we're told that uh, Moses uh, is an Israelite who grows up in the palace of the Egyptian kings. And Moses, uh, he commits some, some crimes, and so he runs away. He lives in exile for 40 years. And while he's in exile, he comes to a mount called Mount Sinai, and there God, in a burning bush, to speaks to Moses and says, Moses, go back to Egypt, get my people, and bring them out. And so Moses goes back to the place that he's fled from. You know, he's fled for good reason. He's committed some crimes. All right? And he goes there, and he says, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. So God pours plague after plague after plague upon the uh, Egyptians, proving that he is a better God than all the Egyptian gods combined. And finally, Pharaoh lets the people go. And the Israelites come out, and they come to Mount Sinai. And we read that, that when they get to Mount Sinai, God shows up. 
And there's fire on top of the mountain. There's smoke. And God starts to speak. And the Israelites go, no, we don't want to do this. And they turn to Moses and say, Moses, we're afraid. And they're afraid for good reasons. Right? And they say, Moses, you've already spoken to God. You go up to God and you talk for us. And so Moses becomes this mediator, if you will. We use mediation today, don't we? When there's a, a union and an employer that, that's at, at odds and they can't seem to work together, what's one of the first things they do? They go to a mediator who sits down with both groups and try to work it out, not always successfully. You may have mediated between your friends. You've had two friends that are at odds with each other and they can't seem to reconcile. And so what do you do? You go and you try to, to get them to come together, to be friends again. And this is what Moses is doing. He's standing in between God and God's people, the Israelites. And he goes to God and God says, this is what I want them to do. This is what my expectations are. And he comes and says, this is what God says. And the Israelites say, yes, we will do it. And so Moses goes back to God and says, yes, they'll do it. And not that God really needed Moses to do this, right? I mean, God knew what their answer was. But yet Moses is doing this, this whole thing, bringing the covenant, sacrificing animals to, to seal the covenants, and it's all because later on in history, we read that Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. What Moses was doing on Mount Sinai between the people of God and God himself was what one day Christ would do. Standing in the gap between God and the new people of God. Providing an avenue to talk to the Almighty Lord of heavens and earth. And Jesus, when He brought the covenants, these covenants that were ratified with blood as a sign that we are going to do whatever we're going to do. Jesus' covenant that He brings, it's sealed with His own blood. The blood of the Lamb of God. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is this. Everywhere, there's this promise. This promise that if we have faith in Christ and what He does, we can have our sins wiped free. Wiped free because of the blood of Christ. We see this promise all the way back in the creation account. When God looks at the serpent and says, you, there's going to be a seed that's going to crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel. We see it in this, the story of Isaac being sacrificed. And Christ one day was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. We see it in the story of Moses. We see it in the mediator who stands in the gap with his arms hung wide. Meant to bring us forgiveness and salvation. The Bible is not a bunch of disconnected stories. They are all interconnected. They are all pointing to one person. We get to the story of Jonah. This story is vastly different than the rest of the Old Testament because for the most part in the Old Testament, God is dealing with the Israelites. Yet in Jonah, he decides to deal with someone else, the Ninevites. And the Ninevites, they, they are very nasty people in history. Now, we're, we find in history that, that they got to the point where they learned how to skin a person alive. Uh, up to 90% of their skin would be taken off, laid off, and they would still be alive. All right, can you imagine 
the excruciating pain that would be. And that's just part of their evilness. And so God and Jonah, we're told, decides he's going to judge them for very good reasons, right? And so he sends Jonah to go to the Ninevites and say, tell them, hey, tell them that I'm going to judge them. And so Jonah, being the very good prophet of Israel that he was, goes in the opposite direction. You know, Israel was in northwest, or Nineveh was northwest of Israel, uh, or northeast, and he goes southwest, gets on a boat, and travels as far away as possible. But even though he's running away, God still wants to use him. And so God sends a storm. All right, the sailors uh, in the boat are so fearful of their lives, they think they're all going to drown. These are professional men who live on the sea. Uh, and so Jonah steps up and says, hey, it's me that's the reason the storm's here. And so they toss Jonah overboard, and he's swallowed up by a great fish. And for three days, Jonah is in the belly of this fish, praying to God, asking forgiveness, asking to be used again. And finally, he's spat out on the ground after three days, and he goes to Nineveh, and he tells them this. It's really easy. All of you guys can memorize it. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all Jonah says over and over again. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what we see happen is this. The Ninevites repent. That makes no sense. I mean, Jonah's, I mean, maybe he did it in a much more passionate way than what I just did, but his message is very simple and not something many of us would, would believe. And yet, we see an entire city turn their lives around and plead to God for forgiveness. Why? Well, if we look at history, we can see uh, there's this ancient language called cuneiform. It was probably used in Nineveh at this time. And, and, and the cuneiform for Nineveh is a picture of a fish inside a house. And we don't know much about Nineveh, but we, we, we do know that it was named after uh, an ancient goddess called Nina, who was the goddess of the river that Nineveh was on. And it's the goddess of fish. And so here's this guy coming, who, who's been in the belly of a fish for three days, who doesn't probably look very right, who probably smells really, really badly, all right? And, and he's coming and he's saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And they believe him. Not because they're fearful of the God that he's serving or that he even belongs to them, but they believe him because of how he looks, because he spent time in this fish. The story of Jonah makes no sense. Why would this happen? Unless you look at the foreshadowing it was showing of a man who died on a cross and was laid in a tomb. And for three days he laid in that tomb, uh, dead to the world, and on the third day he came back to life. Coming out of the tomb much like Jonah came out of his tomb. And the story of Jesus is foreshadowed even in the story of Jonah. And so I leave you with this question. The Bible is probably the greatest evidence of foreshadowing. More than just a literary device, it is the foreshadowment of history. God, in his interaction with mankind, was pointing to one singular event. And that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if that's true, 
If Jesus came and he died so that we can have forgiveness and he came back to life so that we may have life everlasting, why do we not believe it? I want to leave you with this video on the screen.